welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Proudly celebrating Feptober. Is that nothing but blocks of February? Yeah, that's right. Nonstop blocks of February. This radio station is confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to Escher FM, where nothing is as it seems. (laughs) The Mobius Strip of theological podcasts. (laughs) Also, joined by the match of the internet, all in Mercury, Tennessee by Lee Younger. I'm here in the no snow having Tennessee. Thanks, Lee. That must be nice. (laughs) How nice for you. I, yesterday, had to include the top of my car in the clearing off of snow because there was a full two inches of snow on top of it that would have blown off into the windshields of other drivers. And that's a thing you have to consider when it's been snowing for 18 hours straight. (laughs) When When you have to use a broom on your car. Oh, no. Oh, no. Lee, I went and bought a two and a half foot wide uh, bit of kind of wrapped foam core board from a thing called a snow Joe, which is, I believe started for like truckers because it has like a telescoping pole. So you can push off massive amounts of quality quantities of snow off your giant truck at once. And I use that for my 2015 Honda fit. (laughs) <laughs> because that's how you minimize the amount of time you have to be outside your car pushing snow off every square inch of it. Hearing you talk about this, all I can like the only thing in my brain now is the snowplow, Homer Simpson gag, and yes. I, now all I want to do is just you know we can make the podcast, but if I had my druthers, just the three of us would be in the living room watching the snowplow episode together. Sure, it's just a nice popcorn. Listener, if you're familiar with it, just hum the Mister Plow theme song to yourself. Gently in the background of this entire episode. <laughs> or the uh, counter, the anti-Mr. Plow song that Barney enlists country superstar Loretta Lynn to do the vocals for. <laughs> or the Spanish version of that song, which I occasionally randomly sing to myself in a <laughs> sign of what is both a profound nostalgia for the early episodes of The Simpsons and probably a symptom of some kind of deep-seated mental issue. thank you we move on from that we move on to a similar emergency setting of some people wishing there was less of something what okay here in the city of chicago across the upper midwest we're wishing there was less snow a gentleman some of you may have heard of uh he he he's currently holds the office of the bush bishop of rome the holy see if you will pope francis put out a little edict as you know popes are wont to do throughout history this is this is going to go down as one of the the more chill ones you know in the grander scheme of excommunications <laughs> and wars and whatnot but it did the chill papal edict that's right but it did have a theme that is near and dear to this show and it's something we've been harping on for many many years and i i will read from the, the English translation of what he put out says, I want to emphasize this a great de- deal, and here I will say something that is linked to silence. But for priests, please, the homilies, they are a disaster. <laughs> At times I hear someone say, quote, yes, I went to Mass in that parish. Yes, a good lesson of philosophy. 40, 45 minutes. 8, 10, no more. And always a thought, a sentiment, and an image. Let people take something home with them. I want to emphasize this. So, uh, yeah. Wrap it up, says Pope. <laughs> I've I've pulled up some numbers here because I, I think it's I think it's worth putting these things in context. We're talking about a, a forty-five minute lecture, so just some quick googling. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when he gave his I Have a Dream address, which I think is fair to think certainly of having the form of a sermon, um, commonly considered to be one of the greatest pieces of oratory of all time, and, and rightly so, it would be hard to to find a spoken communication that has had a, a richer impact 
on and that everybody agrees on and that everybody Good. agrees on a, a duration of 17 minutes 17 oh, wow. minutes okay now we will move on to um uh, churchill's we shall fight them on the beaches speech um uh, it is arguable that this turned the course of a literal world war when uh, tyranny, worldwide tyranny, was uh, hanging in the balance, and someone had to say something that would put things aright, and someone did so, and it lasted twelve minutes. But let's wow. let's not stop there. Let's let's look at one more. A man who was fighting the literal scourge of slavery. Yes, one Abraham Lincoln speaking and needing both to bring healing and encouragement and inspiration to memorialize those who had made the ultimate sacrifice and to inspire those who remained to give their utmost that all men might be free. Yes, I'm talking about the Gettysburg Address. A grand total, a duration in its totality of two minutes. Yeah. Two minutes okay jed and i hear you but here's the <laughs> thing about that um i saw this movie did you and at the end there was something that i thought was really cool but in order to get us all there i am gonna have to explain the entire plot of the movie <laughs> okay okay because that's the only way it's really gonna pop okay like you know i gotta explain all the main players get them in place and then I can almost certainly slightly misquote this line of dialogue that I think is really going to drive this home. <laughs> but, but Matt, what if, what if I'm a member of your parish or congregation that like, just the fact that you even brought that genre up, it just, I, I've already switched my brain off because I don't know anything about it and I don't care about it in any way. And so you really lost me by doing that. Well, Lee, I think that shows a lack of imagination and commitment on your part. Yeah, and I think if you really yeah. dig in and focus up, you just I get can it. explain why the lessons about balance and generosity put forth by the air raid offense have a lot to teach us. <laughs> so it all starts at Ohio Wesleyan with Hal Mummy in the mid '80s. I'm going to get the I'm going to get the chalkboard out here. We're going to drop four verts, and I think we're going to show what that really has to do with your life. I desperately want, as a bit of theater, I desperately want a, a keynote speaker at a, at a conference for preachers to give an address and insist on using an, a colossally complicated metaphor from the world of esports. You know, guys that are playing like StarCraft for a living. It's like, hang in there. I know you guys don't know how this works. I'm going to break the whole thing. And just like 30 minutes of explaining StarCraft and how the dynamics work and why they need those fancy chairs and how it all breaks. The amount of focus it takes to do this for like 12 hours straight, y'all. And then they'd be like, see, that's what you do to people every week. Did you hate it? Well, they do too. Well, now I'm picturing the Gen Z version of the pastor who gives the who di really digs into the baseball analogy or whatever, because esports is, is rising in popularity. And the, I don't know anything about video games, really. I know even less about the kind that esports about. So the only reference I can pull is at Easter, he's victorious. He is the king of kings. It's a real victory royale. Ooh, which I think is a Fortnite thing. <laughs> or was like four years ago. Yeah, I think that would play. I think, I think that know, would play. In a congregation of a hundred people, I th I think that at least two or three are really going to dig that reference. Yeah. So probably the thirty minute explanation leading up to it is super worth it. Absolutely, I can't see any way it wouldn't be. Well, I think there's the the length thing is very important, and there's also the the bit of jealousy for those of us who do try to who have when we've done speaking and sermons and stuff tried to be cognizant of other people's times and interests. And those things overlap because as Jed was mentioning the great moments of oratory there, uh, I was thinking of what I consider to be the height of a per persuasional speech in the Western canon. And of course that's the dusty roads, hard times promo <laughs> uh, given in the, the cell to Starcade 1986, three and a half minutes. There you go. And now here's the thing. I can also tell you why the Dusty Rhodes Hard Times promo really encapsulates a lot about the human condition and what it is to live in a community, to think the best of yourself, to 
want to be part of a living and active body of people who are doing the best for themselves and each other. I can bring that around to a sermon, but I never did because I know people don't care. Yeah. And if I can do that, you can also look at your fishing story and think, but what if people don't care about fishing? (laughs) That's a good question. Here's a thing that is important for all of us, just as a thing to develop in life, is you got your fishing story. And here's the thing is you like fishing and you went out and you had a good day. You want to talk about it. Build friends that want to hear that. We all right, need yep. to have friends in our lives where we can be like, can I nerd out for five minutes and tell you about this cool thing? And our friends say, yes, yes, you can. That's what your friends are for. That's not what your sermon is for. Yes. <laughs> and these are all great points. I do want to go back to the, the uh, edict. Uh, I assume this is what a papal bull is. I could be wrong. But, you know, put out by uh, Pope Francis. Because he goes on to say, Uh, Because it is something that we end up not understanding. The homily is not a conference. Good point. It is sacramental. The Lutherans say that it is a sacrament. It is sacramental. I think for the Lutherans, it is sacramental, not not a conference. You know how bad your sermon has to be to get the Pope to be quoting the Lutherans? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, with written communication, you can never know for sure the intended tone of voice. But in my mind, it's like, look, even the Lutherans get this, y'all. Yeah. Historically, followers of Martin Luther and the Pope not really had a lot of common ground. (laughs) But you needing to shut up after 10 minutes is where it happens. And then he goes on. (laughs) <laughs> Again, I'm sure this is translated from either Latin or Spanish, which I believe is Pope Francis's uh, first language. It just ends. Please, the homilies, which are a disaster in general. <laughs> wow. Here's a question I have, because he's, say, he's saying, you know, oh, I go up to the thing and people say this. Who was the last person who preached a homily in front of Pope Francis before this oh, came out? Oh, snap. Yeah. Tough. Either That's in tough. Rome or he was visiting somewhere. Or there was some kind of conference. And, you know, Bishop so-and-so gave, <laughs> gave the homily because we don't know who it is. But I can guarantee you that person is keenly aware of it. Yeah. You know, it, there's an important principle which everybody would do good to understand, which is if people expect you to talk for a certain length of time and you talk for less time than that, no one's ever complained about that ever. Preach, dude. Say that. Look, man, as a preacher's kid, I have heard many, many, many sermons (laughs) in my life and really too many. I want to be clear on that. Really too many. I've never once heard a sermon finished and thought, oh, you should go on a bit more. Never once. I've been blessed to hear some incredible world-class preaching from people with amazing gifts and so much to share. And even then, at the end of an amazing but short sermon, I thought, that was great. Never once have I thought, no, 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 don't be done. Don't don't be done. Please go go on a bit more. Never once. <laughs> I would expand that out to uh concerts, stand-up comedy performances. Yeah. Movies. Mm. Pretty much think of anything you've ever really enjoyed at the end of it with your first thought. Well, I wish they had found a way to pad that out for another 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking now of like early Hemingway manuscripts, getting notes back from the publisher of very real, very raw, very authentic. If you could double the length, though, that would just be so much better. <laughs> Explore the space. Why is he so yeah. old? What's he doing in the sea? How did he get there? <laughs> give us, you know, maybe give us a backstory on some of the animals. Maybe some of them could talk. You know, they could have dialogue. It could be a whole thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, to take us back to the to where we started, um, I've never finished one of my many dozens, possibly into the hundreds of viewings of the Mr. Plow episode of The Simpsons and thought, gosh, I wish that was 45 minutes long. <laughs> Right. I just hate that that's an extremely tight 22 minutes packed with what it needs to do. <laughs> so I, I, I babysat one of my friend's uh, children this past weekend, and I'm hanging out with this adorable little child. And 
we're looking at some blocks and we're and we're going through colors and and I I picked up a block that was blue and I I said the word blue and that reminded the child of his favorite TV show which is an Australian cartoon about dogs called Bluey. Ah. All the all the dogs in the family can talk and and uh and so as soon as I said blue <laughs> he said his version of the word Bluey and then turned and pointed at the TV. And I was like, "Right on, Jude. Let's watch some Bluey." Yeah. So we turned on some Bluey and uh which I'd never really seen much of this before. And the episode that we turned on, in fact all the episodes are about eight and a half minutes long. <laughs> Just fantastic storytelling. Super great, super tight, super fun. But nobody is like, man, I really need that. I really need that epic bluey movie. You know, that three and a half hour, like you need an intermission to use the bathroom movie. Yeah. I now, Though now I am intrigued by the idea of Avatar 3 having a bluey element. <laughs> it was already about animals and people are blue. Like I feel like that's the kind of crossover that the corporate media world really is drawn to. Just an adorable cartoon Australian sheepdog. Yeah, that cost five hundred million dollars to animate. <laughs> yeah. Well, and with that said, we will we will wrap this up much in the way that we hope. Uh, the homiletic givers of the world will be wrapping up their own segments after not too long. And I knew, I know we do have some seminarians some pastors some youth leaders and whatnot who listen to this show. So uh, maybe you've given a talk that didn't go the way you thought it would. Heaven knows I have, but the Pope's never gotten involved. <laughs> the same broad mechanism of papal decree that started, you know, War, the Thirty Years' War, the excommunication of Henry VIII, these kind of things. I've I've never gave a sermon so bad that that same general idea happened. So something to feel good about. <laughs> That's good. With that, we will move on to our questions that have come in from our fine listeners. If you'd like to write in a question, you can uh, drop us a line. Hey, this all the way in the like you can touch this, or you can click scroll down to your episode descriptions, click one of the links you find there. First question comes in and says, how do I know if I'm doing something wise? People tell me to measure it against scripture or get spiritual counsel, but the same people misuse scripture and I don't trust anyone enough to give them a weight in my decision-making. I also know that sometimes I think something is wise when it isn't. So how do I really know when I found the wisdom to apply to my life? I think this is a great question in a number of ways. And one of them is just at the base of it. If you are in a situation, which we all find ourselves in, where you need to seek wisdom, which is something we've talked about a ton in this show over the years, we encourage it to do that. There is this weird catch-22 of someone can give you really good advice or someone can give you something that makes sense, but you still have to pull the trigger and you started this whole process because you don't know what to do. So I think there's an inherent tension there that our, our question asker gets to a very good a point of asking, but Jed, where do we start off with this idea of, I, I know there's a wise thing to do. People are telling me there are these ways to check it, which are good in and of themselves, but don't always give me a clear cut answer either. So how do we start this kind of maybe decision tree process of, is this actually a good idea? That's a great question, man. Okay, so the following is typically a cliche, but here it's going to be really useful, right? People like uh, Webster's Dictionary defines marriage as, you know, we're actually going to look at that together because here it's really helpful. So if you look up the definition of wisdom, what you will read is the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. So let's look at those three things, experience, knowledge, good judgment. Don't do your own plumbing. If you're not sure that you know how to do your own plumbing, don't do your own plumbing. And specifically, don't do your own plumbing because to do it requires experience, knowledge, and good judgment. And there's one more thing, which is the stakes. If you get this wrong, yeah. it's going to be real, real bad. You should think about that. Don't do your own plumbing. You would know if you had experience because you would have done plumbing before. Like you, you should know if you have an experience in, in a matter. Um, 
you would know if you if you had knowledge about something. And good judgment kind of comes from not just having experience, but having a lot of experience, right? Mm. Like one of the interesting things about good judgment is it usually comes from having done something enough to have done it wrong a few times. Like I've I've made some mistakes here. Sometimes I've overdone it. Sometimes I've underdone it. And when it comes to something where the stakes are high, like your plumbing, you want to benefit from someone else learning the hard way rather than you learning the hard way. This is yeah, dude. This is why you hire a plumber. So interestingly, for most of us, most of the time, if what we need is wisdom, we actually have to start with something other than wisdom. We have to start with humility. We have to start by honestly asking ourselves, with the subject that is in front of me, with the decision that is in front of me, do I have experience regarding this? Do I have knowledge regarding this? And do I have sufficient knowledge and experience that it could have manifested as good judgment, where I have a sense of left and right limits, and I've kind of seen things go really well and go really poorly, and so I have a sense of how it all goes. Do I have all of those things? Because if you do, then great. You probably don't need any outside input. You can just figure out what the right move is, and and you can move forward. But if you don't, that's where humility comes in, and that's being able to admit to yourself, Matt, I actually don't. I don't have wisdom on this. I don't have experience. I don't have knowledge. I don't have good judgment on this. And that doesn't make me a bad person. It just means this is something I don't know very much about. If we can start with that humility, now we can ask, who can I borrow wisdom from? That's one of the really great things about wisdom is it's a resource that can be bought and sold and lent and borrowed. Some resources really can't. Like you you can't borrow someone else's good marriage. You You actually have to build your own. But you can borrow someone else's wisdom, and you absolutely should. That's one of the things that makes wisdom so powerful. And so, like, if you think about scheduling a consultation with an attorney, that's literally you purchasing someone else's wisdom. If you think about getting an assessment from a plumber or an electrician, that is very literally you borrowing someone else's wisdom because it's not just expertise. It's not just that they know more than you do. So they know how to apply it. They know how to make good judgments on this subject. So again, in a purely human sense, wisdom is this synthesis of experience and knowledge and good judgment. And if we can, if we have it in ourselves on a particular topic, that's great. But if we don't, if we can have the humility to acknowledge that, that frees us up to recognize that wisdom can be borrowed. Wisdom can be rented. Wisdom can be bought, which is good. And The more that we give ourselves permission to seek out that wisdom, the better off we are. I'll add one more thing. Once we get into that mode of recognizing that wisdom, in a sense, can be outsourced, figuring out how to do that effectively becomes a skill unto itself. The most resourceful people I know are very comfortable with the limitations of their own knowledge, Mm -hmm. the limitations of their own wisdom. So they become expert at figuring out how to locate wisdom havers, how to vet wisdom havers. Not everyone who claims to have wisdom on a topic actually has wisdom on that topic. So learning how to vet people who know more about a topic than you do is actually an interesting skill that you need to develop. How do you figure out which which wisdom havers are legit and which aren't? But all of that goes back to humility. The sooner that you can recognize when you don't have an expertise, the more you can lean into finding it and figuring out how to find it effectively. That's all fantastic stuff. One slight caveat I would give on the excellent advice Jed gave you there is if you have a plum in your home, do not say to them, I'd like to borrow your wisdom. Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that they're going to be used to things being phrased in that term. So yeah, uh, it's the right it's the right thing. But we that is the way to think about it. Maybe not the way to relate it to someone. Yeah. You don't want to call the plumbing office and be like, I'd like you to send someone out so I can borrow their wisdom. They're not going to come to your home. (laughs) They're going to call the police as well. They should, Uh, but all great stuff there. And Lee, I think Jed did a great job covering the, the kind of expertise, the outside wisdom part of that. I'd love for you to zero in on something else. This person mentioned their question, which I totally understand, but I think is going to be a problem in the long run, which is the idea of, I don't trust anyone enough for to them to give them weight in my decision making. Yeah. Um, that is gonna be that's gonna equal a long hard road when trying to find wisdom, because as Jed points out, we need that from outside sources. So we don't need to trust everyone, obviously, and most people who have a 
some issues with trust come by that honestly, but we do need to start developing a framework for being able to trust some people about some things, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think for I think for folks in a in a Christian context, folks who have grown up in churches and have spent a lot of time there, there is a tendency, you know, it sounds like the question asker has had some situations where they've gotten burned by some people who have lost their trust and um you know, people who speak with authority on uh, on the Bible, and then and then this person has realized, man, a lot of people who have spoken with authority on on things about God and things about the Scriptures have turned out to be completely messed up in some of their views and some of the th- and some of the conclusions that they've drawn. That that is definitely the experience of a lot of folks, and it's been happening more and more. And people are are kind of waking up to that to that reality. One of the weird things about Christian culture, though, is that, and I hope I'm going to explain this the right way. Um, People tend to hand authority over to whoever has the most charisma and confidence. Um, And the thing about charisma and confidence is that those can be very valuable assets for somebody that needs to communicate something to a lot of people. Those things, that that can be a very helpful thing to have in, in a communicator. That doesn't mean that that's the person that you need to go to for all of your wisdom about things. Yep. That person may not have the character that lines up with that charisma and that confidence. But the problem with a lot of church uh, situations, a lot of Christian culture stuff, is that we put a lot of emphasis, a lot of authority in the hands of whoever has those gifts. And so what I would suggest to you is, especially if you are a person who has been kind of burned by folks in the past, is don't, you know, don't go to whoever has like the highest, you know, automatically whoever has the highest office in your church or anything like that. I think that you should be picky about the person that you decide to, um, to extend a little bit of trust to and the person, the, 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 the qualities that you need to look for and a person that you want to go to as a person with wisdom and trust is someone who has relational equity with you. Somebody that somebody that um handles relationships well. Someone that someone that a lot of people speak well of, someone that you have seen and like they have a marriage that you respect, they have friendships that they've had for a long time. They ha- the, you know, maybe you've seen them, you know, experience handling of conflicts and stuff like that with with a cool head and and in a respectful way. In other words, be picky, look around in your life, not for the person with the the most charisma and confidence, not necessarily somebody who everybody else has tapped as a leader, but someone who has the someone who has really good relationships. And then that person, even if they might not know about the plumbing or they might not know about, you know, they might not be able to represent you in court, that might be a person who is kind of a, who can be a conduit that you can trust, who can open you up to some people that they trust. Hey, here's, here's who I go to for tires. Like, this is the person that I go to for tires. Oh, great. Well, then I'm going to start with what you say, because the way that you handle your relationships with respect, the, the, the equity that you've built with me and with other people in our community, that leads me to believe that I'm going to start with you. Um, <clears throat> I definitely have people like that in my life who they, you know, there's a few things that I know a couple things about. And there's, and then, and, and then I've got these other people in my life who they know stuff about, about things I have no idea about, but I know the way that they treat their friends. And I know the way that they treat their spouse, and I know the way that they treat their children and their neighbors, and all of those things, even though I don't know the stuff that they do, I know enough about them that makes me say, like, that's a person that I'm going to be picky, and I'm going to entrust myself with them and kind of go to them for wisdom. So again, um, don't just hand your trust over to the, per- to, to the people that everybody has given authority to necessarily. Look around, be picky, and find somebody that treats people with respect over a long period of time and start there. I think it's a fantastic point. Um, To put that in a different context and maybe a different way to think about it, let's say you were looking for a plumber. You're going on to Google. You say, I got a pipe burst or whatever. I need a plumber. I need it now. You're going to Google. You're going to get some results in your area. You're going to read the reviews. You're going to ask around if anyone else has used this person. You're going to see if, you know, you might go on Facebook and ask, hey, has anybody 
Nova Plumber and get that reference. It's good to do that with people too. Don't write them off, but right. Do we have results? Do other people know how this is gone? Do we, can we read some reviews? Cause I would definitely add to Lee's list of people that we don't necessarily want to jump into trusting just the person who has the loudest opinion first. And I wonder if that's where you've gotten burned a little bit before by the person who tells you, Oh, I've got a guy for this or, Oh, I know here's what you got to do. Just cause, just cause you want me to take your advice does not mean your advice is worth taking. We need to, uh, look at some fruit of how you live your life within the relational sense, as Lee's pointing out there, but also like, you know, if you're telling me about your mechanic, does your car run well? What's what's going on there? If you're telling me about your home improvement plans, does how does your house look? Are you constantly worried about things not working? Because that's cool too, but I'm not. Just because you know a guy does not mean you know someone I should be <laughs> trusting my myself with. And uh, one more hint on that analogy we've we've mentioned before on the show just because you find a good plumber does not mean you should let them work on your car yep right yeah you know there's fluids and like you know it's kind of blue collar no no no. it's it's okay to trust people someone for certain things yep to certain extents you don't have to totally throw your lot in with someone if someone gives a suggestion you can say Okay, you're like a you're like a twenty percent guy. I'm gonna give this that much um weight. If I don't find anything better, I'm gonna investigate this a little bit harder myself than if someone was a ninety percent person, like Lee's saying, where they say, oh, I go over here, you say, Well, that's good enough for me, because I know about you. There's a lot of fluctuations on this, but that is all fine. That doesn't mean it can't be done. That's not an instrumental obstacle, it's just Stuff we have to weigh as we go about this very important process of getting concepts, getting wisdom, getting ideas from outside of ourselves, which is really the only way to grow yourself as a person and grow in your life is to get input from outside of yourself. So it's very, very important to know how to filter that. So great question. A lot of great stuff from these guys. We'll move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, can you guys recommend some books about theology for someone who is new to it? So a uh, very cool question. We've talked about, obviously, uh, some books of in the past. I don't know we've necessarily touched upon theology in general, but I think it's a, a great way to go. I think it's a very, very cool idea. And Jed, where do we start off here? It's a great question, man. I'll, I'll give you a couple that I happen to like, but as we will dig into in just a moment, it, it's just my opinions. It's stuff, just stuff I like. It doesn't make it good or bad or right or wrong. Um there's a writer named Abraham Heschel who um, I think is a total genius and is amazing. Um, I don't think you could go wrong with with anything that he's written, but my favorite book from him is called The Prophets, and um, it's both kind of an, an overview of, of the Old Testament prophets, but um, a, a great deal of theology of what does it mean to be a prophet and what does it mean to uh, commune with God and to speak on God's behalf to others. I think it's an amazing book. Um, definitely strong recommend. Also, we're getting close to the Lenten season, so uh, if you if you want something that kind of gets into that, it's a very short book, so The Prophets is very long. If you want a very, very short book, um, Father James Martin has a book called Seven Last Words, which is kind of his meditations on um, the things Jesus is reported to have said shortly before he died. It's really good stuff. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think it's good. But I want to give you a couple thoughts about reading theology generally, just for you to to have in your brain, because I, I think it's this is important stuff. The first is when you're reading any theologian, whether it's Heschel or James Martin or John Calvin or C.S. Lewis or anybody else, these are just their opinions, man. That's it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, some of them are very learned guys, and um, some of them have developed cult followings, and that's cool, and that's great, but these, these are still just their opinions. Um, this this is not scripture. You're under no obligation to uh, agree with anything that they had to say. You can you can read it and go, nope, uh, that's that's totally allowed. The second thing, and in many ways, I think this is more important than it has ever been, certainly in recent history. If you find a theologian or, or a writer who does some theology and you and you like them, the fact that they said one helpful thing or one thing that was helpful to you doesn't mean that everything they say is good and right 
and helpful. Nor does it mean that you need to accept everything they said is good and right and helpful, nor does it mean that yeah. you need to defend everything they said is good and right and helpful to other people. You you can read something like I've loved plenty of stuff that C.S. Lewis has said and I've found really useful. There's other stuff he said. I'm like, nope. Uh, and y- you're allowed to do that, too. Um you, I mean, Augustine is another example of a person where I think, um, and this is true ultimately for everybody because it's just human beings, but like Augustine had some insights that were amazing and that like, dang, dude, that that's profound. And other stuff where I'm like, buddy, that, I don't think that was it. I, I see what you're going for, but I don't, I don't think that was, that was quite all the way there. That's, that's totally okay. Um, you, I, to, to put it another way. We are not trying. I don't want you to become a fan of a theologian. We do not want you to become fans of theologians. If you read something and it's useful to you and it's helpful to you and it puts something in context, awesome. But you do not need to be on the John Calvin bandwagon or the Arminius bandwagon or any other bandwagon because that lay that way lies weirdness. uh, And we want to avoid that. One final thought. How do you know if it's helpful or not, right? Like, what's what's the barometer? Here's the thing I would encourage you to consider. The whole thing about being a Christian is that you would follow in the example of Jesus, that you would, in some way, that your life would be a reflection of the character of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's a very, very big part of what it means to be a Christian. The stuff that you're reading, the theology that you're getting into, the ideas that you're putting in your brain, do they help you to be a kinder, more loving person? Do they make it easier for you to be a kinder, more loving person? Jesus, the one who founded this religion, the one that from whence the name Christian comes, the one that we are saying we want to follow, he said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. The things that you are reading, are they helping you love people easier, more effectively, more naturally? Jesus also said that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. The things that you're reading, are they helping you love yourself better? Are they helping you be kinder to yourself? Are they helping you be gentler with yourself? Are they helping you be more understanding with yourself? And the reason I ask is that particularly in Protestant American evangelicalism, so much of what is described as theology, and from a technical standpoint, it is, is just people encouraging you to be a total jerk to yourself. Let's tell the truth. That's what so much of it is. It's a lot of big $10 words that boils down to, you know what, if you were just oh, way more of a jerk to yourself, you'd be a way better Christian. And that is not true. That is not accurate. It does not work. If it appears to work, it's only going to work for about five minutes, and then everything will be worse on the other side of it. Whatever you're reading, whatever you're into, is it helping you love yourself and helping you love other people more easily and more effectively? That's what we want for you. I strongly believe that's what God wants for you. Wonderful place to start that off. Grid recommendations and a very, very important background there. And Lee, where do we, what would we add to that? I completely agree with all that stuff that, that Jed was laying out, I think you should rewind it and listen to it again. Theology is a weird thing. I mean, the, there are so many things that I, you know, I I grew up in church and so I have heard and, and read a lot of stuff for a lot of years. And it's so funny how people get in these theological grooves and because every, because of the way human beings are, because we do become fans of people, because we do take people's you know, word at face value and we don't necessarily investigate it and that kind of stuff because they have all these letters behind their names and they did all this study and they have, you know, they hold these degrees or whatever. All of a sudden we start parroting things that we haven't investigated for ourselves and haven't actually thought about. I mean, one thing that's, that, um, is a really interesting thing. I've had people for years ask me in church, Hey, can you recommend a good commentary, uh, like a good Bible commentary on the book of Psalms? No, no, no one can. You can't write a, a commentary on the book of Psalms. You will murder it. Like <laughs> that's how you kill the Psalms is you turn it into an academic exercise where you're diagramming it and you're breaking it down and trying to, you know, what that it's, 
it's art. It, these are songs, and and it's it's about emotion. It's about depth of feeling and pain and joy and celebration. It's it's just read it. What does it say to you? Just they're they're songs. Um, I, I mean, my entire life, every single Christmas, I grew up in church hearing that that you know the uh, speaking of the prophets that the you know that God had stopped speaking uh, to His people through the prophets for four hundred years until John the Baptist you know, became the the first prophet in, in four centuries. Well, everybody that ever said that and ever read it in a commentary and a, from a theologian skipped over the fact that there was an old lady in the temple when Jesus was a baby, and Luke clearly says she was a prophet. It's just right there. But because, because theology has been done by, by just by dude-centric dude thinkers for so many years, everybody perpetuates things that you don't have to have a degree to see that it's just right there. And we all heard it and we all regurgitated it forever and ever and ever. Okay. All that to say, it's the stuff that Jeb was saying is really, really critically important because um, when a group of people gets an insular way of thinking and reading, they stop to see what it is they're actually studying or trying to learn about or read about. That being said, um, Lately, for me, when I, I I don't actually read a ton of theological stuff, um, you know, just because I mean, it, most of my job as a pastor is to meet with people and listen to them and to talk to them and to try to help them. But when I do get some reading time, if I am going to read some theological stuff these days, I'm looking for books um, by women authors, and I'm looking for books by people of color. I'm trying to get perspectives that are not my natural perspective. And I'm trying to learn things that I wouldn't naturally learn because, because there's just things I don't see. Um, I'll make a, a couple of quick recommendations. One is uh, a lady from Cambridge um, named Rebecca McLaughlin. She wrote a book called Confronting Christianity. And, um, and it's a good book. I, per Jed's point, there's a couple of chapters I would have tossed out. But in general, I liked it. I thought it was a good book, and I thought there were some helpful answers in there. Um, she did a kind of a simplified version of that called um, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. And it's just a real, real simple kind of version of the exact same book. Um, but it's just theological answers, and it was pretty good. Not all of it was great but some of it was really cool. Um, I like a guy named Esau Macaulay. Esau Macaulay is, um, he is a pastor and a writer, and um, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Reading While Black. And it's just about the ways that, um, that folks that are not black don't understand um, how they just how black folks read the scriptures in a completely different way because of their different history and because of the things that they've been through and how that just how people need to understand them and need to approach the scriptures in a completely different way. There are some amazing arguments in there. There are some amazing observations in that book. Um, and so those are a couple places that, that I would recommend again, I, you know, I'm not a fanboy of either one of these, authors, but I think there's some pretty helpful stuff in their works. And for me, I'm trying to expand my perspective. That's great stuff from both of these guys. I will kind of add on to the the larger discussion about how to think about something like theology. I, I, I think sometimes the term gets us a little mixed up because it's not really an ology in the way that biology or physiology is a thing. Because those things, uh, you can observe it. You can run experiments. You can develop a base of knowledge through the scientific method that gives you information and insights that other people don't have. As both of these guys pointed out, theology, just some guy writing down his opinions. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's a quote I've, I've, I know I've used on the show before, but it really did, in a good way, encapsulate uh, something I think about theology. It's by often referenced author on this podcast, Frederick Buechner. Theology, like fiction, is largely autobiographical. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as these guys pointed out, there have been attempts to make it seem very academic and very black and white and very, um, there was a uh, 
giant tome called Systematic Theology that I'm sure is still taught at a lot of seminaries and got a lot of play uh, for a long time. And it was, you know, it was kind of what it said on the tin. It sought to really break it out. It was literally a textbook. Uh, it also came out that the guy who wrote that was a crazy right-wing wacko about a lot of stuff, a lot of odious opinions yeah. about women and LGBT people and a lot of political opinions that are concerning to me. But again, I, I say that to say this. There are also, I'm sure, uh, biologists and physicists and engineers who have political and social opinions that I would find odious. And that does not necessarily discredit their work because they still built a rocket or understand the Krebs cycle or whatever. Because there's a thing that they have an objective knowledge of. That's not a thing in theology, really. In a way that I can't. I can't, I would probably not be a great idea to say, oh, well, I don't really like the opinions that this person had politically about, you know, social standing and gender identity. Therefore, I'm going to toss out their uh, peer reviewed experiment about physics. <laughs> I can totally say this guy's got a lot of weird, hateful opinions. I don't care what he says about theology. I don't yep. care what, what letters yeah. he has after his name. I don't care what he's been published by just all the way out. That is totally legit. What that also means is there are definitely theological textbooks. There are theology books, good ones like these guys recommended. There are good Bible commentaries. We have often recommended. I lean back to get it. Uh, we've often recommended the William Barclay commentaries. Um, there are some other great ones out there uh, who, as one of the things I like about Barclay is, as Lee points out, he's not, trying to hold your hand and tell you what he thinks all these passages means. He's giving you context, historical and uh, kind of linguistic context to help you understand what is going on. But what that also means is pretty much everything is theology. If you see theology in it, um, if you, you can get theology from Lord of the Rings, you can get it from the poetry. You can get it from people writing memoirs about their life. You can get it from fiction because it's all trying to give you some kind of bigger understanding and glimpse of something that is undefinable by its very nature, that being the character and knowledge of the divine. So in order to, if you think of yourself first and you mentioned your question, you know, I'm new to theology. I would quibble with that on some level. I don't think anyone's mm -hmm. new to theology. Yeah. I think you might be new to thinking about it in a certain way. You may want some terms to, to think about it and that's cool. It helps to have, uh, terms and common phrases to talk about things, to think about things. But I think you're a little more experienced with theology and finding it where you are uh, than you might think of yourself. So uh, read what interests you. Read what gives you, um, fires you up a little bit, gives you some insight. And as these guys pointed out, you don't have to sign up for someone's newsletter and take everything they say about it right. So I'm hit your ear weird. You can check that out. As, as Jed pointed out, we don't need theology fanboys. They tried the Calvin fanboy thing, and now, well, no, we live in that world, and it's you know, nothing good happens. So, you don't need to. If you would describe yourself as an ist of the person whose book you like reading, you may have missed the point of large swaths of this religion, friend. Yeah. At that point, we move on to our final question. Here it comes in and says, "When something is awful in the news, on social media, etc." I some I sometimes want to know to just not think about it anymore. Is that okay? Like I know these things are serious and facing the truth of things is important, but it feels like a lot sometimes. A, an excellent question, always a timely one. Here's the fun thing: based on when this question came in and when you're listening to this podcast, we've all lost track of what horrible thing in the news this is about. So that's fun. Um, but it doesn't really matter. The the inciting incident, uh, a great question nonetheless. And Jed, where do we start off with it? Glad you wrote in. Great question. Timely question. Continues to be a timely question. Will undoubtedly continue to be a timely question for foreseeable future. Let's start here. No one can, in a healthy and productive way, just stew on the worst things the world has to offer 24 hours a day. I want to repeat that because I really need you to hear me. No one, including you, the person listening right now, has the ability, in a way that is in any way healthy or productive, to just sit and stew and marinate and ruminate on all the worst stuff in the world 24 hours a day. That, that is not possible. So that would be a really bad me member of the X-Men. 
What's we your call- mutation? <laughs> I actually have the brain space and the energy to care about and think about and be sad about everything horrible that's happening <laughs> all of the time. What was that incredibly depressing book they made us all read in elementary school about kind of this? The, is it The Giver? Like the one guy oh. just gets... So this is some weird yes. crossover between the X-Men and The Giver, and that's, <laughs> that's dark for us all. What I'm All right, we have a new mission. What's Giver doing? Oh, he's in the corner smoking again. Taking emotional (laughs) trauma like he always is. (laughs) What what I'm hearing is basically the Giver, he has Logan slash Wolverine's mutant healing factor, except instead of healing his physical body, it heals his emotional trauma, whether he wants it to or not. So he's always ready for more. Yeah, exactly. All right. Given that you are not the giver, you can't do that. You you don't have that option. And so we're forced to ask a question that tends to keep being useful, but no one ever likes asking it. What's your goal? Mm. Why, why are you doing this? Like, yes, you can, you can, whether it's the TV or the website or whatever, you can find uh, not only reportage on the worst stuff in the world. These days, often you can find like literal video and watch it happen if you want to. But the question becomes, why are you going to do that? There may be good reasons, but I think you owe it to yourself to ask, what is your goal here? Because there are some goals that could apply and could make sense, and then there are other goals that don't. Here's a first goal, and um, I'm no expert. My my friends uh, here on the podcast could speak to this better than I could. But my understanding is that much of the history of a free press comes from the idea that it is important for voters to be informed. Um, that an informed citizenry is is part of safeguarding a representative do- democracy. So are you trying to be an informed voter? Because that's cool. But like, you don't have to just bathe in the awfulness to have enough knowledge of what's going on in order to vote effectively. Like, you, you, can, you can have enough to be like, this dude seems like a pretty bad guy. He doesn't do good things. I'm not going to vote for him. And then we're done. You, you, you're now yeah. informed enough to vote in a responsible fashion. Is your goal in onboarding all of this traumatic stuff because you want to be an advocate for change? Because that's a great goal, man. Wanting to be an advocate for change is awesome. Um, I would argue, A, you don't need to bathe in awful to be an advocate for change. And uh, all of us on this podcast are people who work in our own capacities to be advocates for change. That's exhausting. So if you're using up all of your energy on just dealing with the the cruddiness that you're seeing you know like on a website that's not going to leave a lot of energy left over to do the actual work for change next possible goal are you doing this just to be pissed off because a lot of people are the term rage porn exists for a reason Mm. are you reading and watching and bathing in these things because you just like being angry no judgment i've done that I think my podcast hosts have probably done that one time or another. What? Yeah. No. An outrageous accusation, Jed. Yeah. <laughs> we don't we don't do judgment on this podcast, so we're not judging you, we're not condemning you, but like if this is just a rage porn thing for you, if it's just like oh, I just like being pissed off about it, so I'm gonna keep on this, I think you owe it to yourself to be honest about that. That that that's what this is, that it's probably not the healthiest thing in the world, it's probably not the best for me, but that that's what I'm doing. The next one goes right along with it, and again, um, I wouldn't like anyone suggesting this could be possible to me, so I will understand if you resent me, but like, are you kind of focused on all this as a way of distracting yourself from the problems in your own life? Mm. Because a lot of people are doing that too, where, sure, I've got about 100,000 things I need to fix about myself, but look at this terrible thing that's going on elsewhere in the world. I think you owe it to yourself to be honest about why you are filling your brain to the extent that you are with the things that you are no judgment, no condemnation, but the more that we can answer that why question, the better we can figure out where do we want to go from here? I want to give you two more thoughts. The first is here is perhaps the most pernicious American lie is that outrage will intrinsically lead to action and change. It does not. Hear me. Outrage does not in and of itself lead anyone to do anything positive. And the corollary, which is the second great American lie, anger is not a superpower. 
There is not a moment where you get pissed off enough and then you just, man, you just get it in a way you never got it before. You have so much wisdom and insight and like no one can stop you and you just kick down the door and you just make them change it. That's not how anything works. Not anything anywhere. Can you channel outrage into something productive? Yeah, you can. Can you channel a sense of anger and righteous indignation into something positive? Yeah, you can. But if you don't channel it on its own, it does not accomplish anything good at all. We want you to be a force for good in this world. We want you to be a force for positive social change in this world. We want you to be a part of the solution. But outrage in and of itself will not just cause that to happen. And anger in and of itself will not cause that to happen. And the process of working for positive change in the world is an exhausting process. And it is often lonely. It is definitely fatiguing. You're going to need as much energy and reserve, including emotional energy, as you can get, which means being judicious about where you spend your emotional energy. Yep. If you spend all of it on watching terrible things online, you actually won't have any left to use for something positive and productive. Um, We would like to see you do positive and productive things in your own life and in the world. Do with that information what you will. A fantastic place to start that off. And Lee, where do we wrap it up? So completely agree with Jed. Going to keep going with the with where he landed the plane right there. Um, it's really weird, you know. The the ages of many of the folks who listen to this show, you are in the first generation of human beings who are f- flooded with information in a way that the human brain was not designed to take it in. Yeah, like you guys, exactly as Jeb was saying early in his response, you're the first generation in the history of the world who has had immediate access, not just to the information that something awful did happen on the other side of the world, but immediately you have the video evidence from seven different angles and the audio and everything. Like everybody, like as soon as something terrible happens, everybody in the world now has a position on it and they have a quote about it and, and it's immediate. And it's like, you got to say it's it's like the the more well known you are, you've got to have a response. You have to have a position on this awful thing that happened and on the, on that scary thing that happened or on that sad event or whatever. And it's just too much to be responsible for or to be or or to be able to process. I mean, j- just to be able to process, yeah. especially when you consider just things that are sad. I think Jed's exactly right about about at, outrage and anger. But let's move on to just things that are tragic. You can't, you can't carry the burden of all of the tragedy that's happening on this planet. You can't, for instance, just have like a, a Twitter account and you just keep up with everything unjust in the world. It's, that, is, that is not an, an efficient way for you to live. You can't even process that. So as a result, I'm going to keep going right where Jed left off. You have to make some decisions based on this question. What is it that you really care about? What is the thing that, like, if you look at, you know, several different types of injustice or tragedy or whatever in the world, what's the one, like, what is the one that really, really, really concerns you? That, and, and, and then carry that further with, what are the connecting points of that issue in my community? And that's where we need to get started. We need to find out if, you, if there's something that you really care about, and then there is some place for you to get involved with that fight in your community, that's where we need to get. Because human beings were designed to be participants in, in communities. You can't, I, I, I've, heard, I've heard Jed say this on the, on the show many years ago, but, and, and Jed, you might have to correct me if I get this wrong, but it's something about how our brain can't actually process relationships with more than, you know, a certain number of people. And, and it's not as large of a number as our, as our Facebook profiles would tell us it is. Yeah. The cap is about 150 people. That's, that's basically yeah. all you've got. Exactly. So y- y- what that means is that the human brain and the human, you know, uh, emotional landscape, you were made to be a part of a relatively small community, actually. So the question is, in all the tragedy and all the difficulty and all the pain and all the injustice of the world, is there, are there one or two issues that really, really matter to you? Now, 
what are the intersections of those issues in the community that you're a part of? And is there a, way, a practical way for you to get involved with that? What can you read about that issue? What can you learn about that issue? And how does that affect how you vote? How does it affect uh, the way that you um, get involved with your money and your time and your energy? Because you have a finite amount of energy. You have a finite amount of attention. You have a finite amount of emotional space. So what do we care about? How do we get involved with it? And how do we get involved with it in practical ways where I am with the people that I know? Those are going to be some important questions for you to consider. And then once you do that, I think with a, with a clean conscience, you can say, I can't actually care about everything that's happening in the world. And that's okay. Because I really, really care about this fight, and I'm getting involved with that. I might find out about some other stuff, but I can't devote all of my energy and emotional self into every single awful thing that's happening. Uh, fantastically put by both of these guys. I would add to Lee's excellent closing point there. Not only is it a you can't do everything, there's a limit to what you can do even on the stuff you care about. Because yeah, yeah. there is also, you know, what conclusion do I need to draw, but then how much information do I need on this? And that is very counter to the way things like uh, television networks run also way things like uh, social media app algorithms run. They say, Oh, you, you really engage with this video of this awful thing happening. Here's some more videos of this kind of awful <laughs> thing happening because that's how algorithms work. Yeah. But they, you don't need more information all the time. Like here's a good, I don't think the police should murder people. I think that's a bad thing. I think police officers do that should be held accountable. I, I know that. I know that that's my position on that. Yep. I don't need to watch a video of them doing it to know that it's bad. I don't need to know how, see how that happened to know that they should not have done that and they should face consequences. But if you don't pump your own brakes on that, uh, CNN will be happy to show you that video. Uh, you know, so your your local news website will be happy to show you that video. TikTok and Instagram will be happy to show you that video and people commenting on the video and people commenting on people's comments on the video. You don't need to watch it. If you, you feel like you get something from watching that, you get new information, get something that helps you understand or grow. Okay, that's cool. I'm, I'm not going to watch it, but that's totally up to you. But you don't need to watch it just for the sake of watching it. I think you mentioned your question. And I think it's a very good point of, there's an idea that to not stare unblinkingly at the worst part of something is not to take it seriously. And that's just not true. There's a level of information you need to make the kind of call that you can, that you have the power to. Now, if you were a city counselor in the city where this happened, yes, you should have to watch that video. You should have to watch every second of it and understand what happened and take that in full force. But if you're not, then it doesn't really change your opinion or your ability to do something about it. And that's okay. That's not a powerless thing. That is kind of keeping your own sanity and understanding your role in the world and your beliefs in it, which is a good thing. All right. If you have a question for us, say that podcast, gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, take out this song this week. It's been a little while since we've heard from our friends, Pete and Tasha Lawson. This is our version of a mighty fortress. Yeah. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Almighty fortress is our God, our bulwark, never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills, prevailing. Oh, the secret.
I'm 